0: Hello, my dear chai drinkers. How are you? Welcome to episode four of season three of the show, coming to you from Washington, DC. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. When we think of spies, we think of iconic leading Hollywood men, read white men, like Sean Connery, Pierce Brosnan, or Daniel Craig. But in real life, patriotic immigrants, men of color also go undercover, risking their lives for love of country. And no one knows what it's like to play spy games with dangerous enemies more intimately than our guest today. I am talking about Naveed Jamali. Jamali is an American TV commentator on national security and is also a former FBI asset. He is the author of the nonfiction book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. Jamali graduated from New York University with a degree in political science and government. He later became a double agent when the Russians attempted to recruit him. In 2019, Naveed joined Newsweek as an editor at large. He has reported extensively on matters of national security and intelligence and was part of the team that broke the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi raid. He is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Naveed. So my first question is, your French mother and Pakistani father... Opened a store in Dobbs Ferry, New York called Books and Research, Inc. Yep. it specialized in obtaining books. This was so cool, by the way. Uh, but I knew this interview was going to be great. But researching you. I felt like a spy. haha. Ha. Okay, so which specialize in obtaining books and documents in the pre-internet age. Yes. From 1988, they were cooperating with the FBI, which was interested in Soviet and later Russian intelligence agents who came into the store seeking hard to find U.S. government documents. Tell me about some cool childhood experiences you had in this bookstore. Your parents sound pretty awesome, huh?
1: Well, I guess I should start off that that's probably the only thing that Matt Gates and I have in common, that both our fathers wore wires. Now, for the FBI. <laughs> actually, my father didn't wear one. I joke about it, but actually, first office, believe it or not, was in Manhattan. So it was in, for those of you who are familiar with New York City, it was in Columbus Circle. And there's an international rule, and this is not just for Russians, it's for Americans and any any diplomat serving overseas. There's essentially international rules that say that a diplomat can travel freely within a 25-mile radius of her or his consulate embassy, what have you. And the reason that's relevant is that for the Soviets in the 80s, that meant that there was not a huge like area of places that they could travel in New York, because the Soviets and the Russians, today have a huge contingency of diplomats and spies, and still today, that are assigned to the Russian and then, at the time, Soviet missions, to the United Nations, so they come here as diplomats. But in actuality, their goal is to recruit Americans to spy and collect the you know the the fruit of those toils, the the intelligence. And wow. so my parents' office in Columbus Circle, and then later on in Dobbs Fair, New York, which is a suburb of New York City. The reason it was relevant is because it allowed the Soviets and the Russians to travel freely to those locations. They didn't have to go to the FBI or the State Department and alert them that they were traveling somewhere. So in a lot of ways, it became my parents' business, which was dealing with the federal government, became this perfect candidate because it was run by immigrants for the Soviets to try and recruit Americans to help them spy. What they didn't count on is that in both cases, my parents and myself, you know, we were much more committed. And I found this to be the case. First-generation Americans are far more loyal and far more understanding the concept of patriotism yes. and I think. A lot of people understand and, and frankly the Soviets and then later on the Russians misjudge because they don't come from countries that are diverse they come from authoritarian governments but also homogenous cultures and, and are in a strong attempt that's part of authoritarianism right to to keep that homogenous and so when they look at someone who is an immigrant their assumption their bias is that person is automatically not going to be as loyal to her or his country and, and frankly That's where the Soviets and the Russians were just flat out wrong.
0: Wow. So true. So true. Oh, my goodness. So cable news talking head, intelligence officer, double agent, dad, author, Newsweek editor at large. You wear a lot of hats.
1: (laughs) I do. I have a big coat rack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which one of these titles is your favorite?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I have to say, like, I think being a dad is probably... Obviously, the one that's the the most meaningful. I will say that you know of all the hats that I wear, the common thread is that you have to be able to talk to people. Whether you you know as an intelligence officer, being able to brief people as a spy, you had to be able to get the Russians to talk. <laughs> as a journalist, you have to be able to get people you want to talk to to talk. And I think that in all of those professions. The one unifying theme besides getting people to talk, or perhaps the one unifying skill, has been humor. That I find that, you know, people think, oh, you're a spy, and you, know, you, need, to, you need to lie, you need to be a consummate liar. And, like, you know, getting people to tell you things out of threats of violence, look, we saw with waterboarding. Like, we just saw that it was not only was amoral, but it wasn't effective in terms of getting, like, usable intelligence because people would literally say anything. But if you can get people to laugh and getting someone to laugh is actually pretty hard. But if you get them to laugh, the conversation is so much easier from that point on. You have a connection. There's a trust. And then people just start talking and they'll tell you things. I mean, when you're a spy, you want people to tell you their secrets, the secrets that they don't want to tell because they're secrets. But if you can get them to trust you, they're much more likely to tell you things. And that's been a skill that regardless of the the hat I'm wearing, that has sort of carried me through all these positions. And it's really, you know, I would say when people say, oh, spy, you have to lie. No, no, you got to be able to make people laugh. Like if you can make them laugh, you can pretty much make them do anything. Because making people laugh is actually really pretty hard.
0: It is. It is. You are so right. And you know what? I always say this, like really funny people, like comedians, they are very intelligent you know yes you have to be smart to to make the jokes to be witty you know it's 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 definitely a skill uh good to know so are you always spying (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know I have to say that
1: you have to be wired in a certain way and pun intended (laughs) yeah 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 like you know but you it's like you kind of always want to win right but when someone's like, oh, I know something, but I don't want to tell you, you're, you're kind of like, all right, challenge accepted. <laughs> it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing. Like, I'll get into this mode. And, you know, like, my wife will have to be like, stop interrogating the kids. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I can't, I can't, like, it's almost, yeah, it's, it is definitely, a, you know, a mindset. And so for me, spying is like trying to figure people out, like, okay, you said something, but there's more to the story. But there's definitely more, like, you're just telling me one piece, because that's, piece you want to tell me but there's like it's like the iceberg it's what's above the water that we're seeing there's so much more below it so yeah it it is like i i enjoy that kind of you know challenge of trying to get people to tell me things they don't necessarily want to tell me it's it's good and bad (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: I'm actually shocked that you're married and your wife is alive. I mean, how did you get married? Geez, thanks. No, I mean, I mean. Well, you
1: clearly my dashing good <laughs> looks, obviously. I mean, come on. That can't <laughs> be a real question. <laughs> no, but like, how did
0: you get married? Because you have to be real with your wife. I mean, did you see that? I, I hate to bring this up. I do have a spy movie question later in the news. Yeah, but-, but did you see that Brad Pitt uh, movie with the French I mean, She was a double agent, too. <laughs> How do you know your wife is not spying on you?
1: You know, I, there are there are certain people that like, you, you know, I, I often joke that like when I told my parents that, so my parents didn't have any, like they'd work with the Russians, but they never done what I did. So when I did it and was finished and I told them, you know, the running joke is that because you're the children of immigrants, they were like, you were a double agent, like you couldn't have been a triple agent. What about a quadruple agent? You know, Joe Smith down the street is married <laughs> to a dentist and... He's and- an octagonal agent, right? Like, <laughs>
0: why didn't you head up the uh, the agent? That's right. That's right. That's it. That's all you got. <laughs> so oh, the
1: reason right. I bring that up is because, look, everyone has their weakness, and there's some people that they can just you can just do this with, and there are other people you can't. And you know, I can't. Like, I, I can't. My kids are one thing to a degree, but even like family, it's not. You know. They don't. They have to have a little bit of respect and fear. And luckily, I can safely say that neither my children nor my wife had either of those things for me. So um it kind of it kind of it negates <laughs> it negates okay. the whole thing. Like you might think of me a James Bond, but I just drive a minivan and pick them up from stuff. So that's how they view me.
0: <laughs> hey, some of the best spies drive the minivans. That's
1: right. That's right. And give their kids time in Minecraft.
0: Yes. <laughs> So with the Derek Chavon uh, trial going on, a yeah. uh, police officer who murdered George Floyd, you recently tweeted, quote, policing as a profession needs a change in culture. Yes. We need more educated police. We need more diverse police. We need more brown and black people in senior positions. The status quo of police culture can no longer remain. I thought that was such an excellent point, so well articulated yeah, but tell our audience more about why you say that.
1: so look, it's in it's in any industry, right? We go, whether it's a fortune five hundred company, whether it's the military, when it comes to diversity, you have to look at it in in sort of two critical concepts when you evaluate how diverse is a place. And that diversity is not just the total number of women, of, of people of color. It has to be looked at it in terms of the, Distribution amongst the organization. So, what do I mean by that? Like, I mean that if you're a corporation and you're 30 or 40 or 50 percent diverse, but your entire diversity is like at the janitorial level, you're not a diverse organization, right? Yeah. So, if you don't have a CEO, you don't have a CFO, a COO, you don't have diversity at leadership levels, then I I would say you're not a diverse organization. Yeah. It's the same thing with the military. It's the same thing with police departments. We talk about, you know. One of the things that I talk to a lot of people who are, you know, uh, police reform uh, and you know, and defund the police is that everything you do cannot harm two basic tenets. One, that we're making sure that incoming police officers, when you reduce the size of incoming police officers, what you do is those are people who are more likely to be brown and black and women, right? They're more likely to be diverse. And when you reduce that incoming group of people, you're not contributing to the overall diversity of the police force. But then the second thing is if you look at leadership in those police forces, look policing, chiefs of police, commissioners, you know, leadership level, it's still primarily white men. And that's not to say that just because by virtue of them being white men, that they're bad people. But it is incredibly important as we see from George Floyd, as we've seen from previous cases, that police come from the community, that police are representative of the communities that they police, that police are not, you know, there is a change in the culture that people who become police officers aren't joining the force because they want to be, you know, be sort of this militaristic paramilitary force, where they're going to use, you know, kick down doors and get into gunfights with people. And until we change that culture and not just by having discussions, not by making it a point, but rather, until we truly commit to diversity, not just diversity of police officers who are on patrol, but police officers at the level of captain, of inspector and things of the leadership level and not just, you know, the top, like you need to have the middle ranks, middle and senior management need to be represented diversity. And that's when you will truly start to see a culture change. And without including that diversity, I, I feel very convinced that it will not matter what change we implement because the people who are sitting in those spots are the ones who have allowed this culture to emerge and to take root. And they need to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What was it like for you to, I mean, what was going through your mind when you saw the events of January 6th unfold? Like as a Brown person, I had so much terror in my heart, seeing this white mob violence. And it's very clear now more than ever that People of color saw it one way, and then, yep. uh, you know, white people saw it one way. What was it like for you, you know, with your intelligence background? Like, what were you thinking? You know,
1: listen, it. it I have felt this for years. Uh, you know, I am very much someone who is motivated very intensely by the, the events of 9-11. And, you know, it, it buoyed this patriotism. And And, you know, as a New Yorker, I mean, New York is a place where I could exist, you know, the son of a... French mother and a Pakistani father. This improbable union. There's not many places in the world that that can happen. New York is one of them. So when you know 9/11 happened, it was an attack on that very fabric that allowed me to be created and thrive. So it's very personal to me. And what I found, though, over the years, and I've come to the realization is that there was always a double standard, right? So yeah. while this was happening, while we were fighting the war on terror, the war on terror didn't mean the war on quote unquote terror. It meant going after brown people and Muslims. Yeah. And I'm not defending that, you know, of course, listen, there is, there is absolutely horrific, uh, you know, Al Qaeda, ISIS and groups that of similar, you know, note are, are terrible. And I, I fully support, you know, eradicating them. Yeah. That of course, though, we've seen on January 6th that there is domestic terrorism. There are there has long been a history of white nationalism, white supremacy in this country, and we've never dealt with it. And you know, I have to say, like living on the West Coast for 40 years, one of the things leading up to January 6th that I saw that I never had seen when I lived on the East Coast is that there's a difference between white supremacy and white nationalism. White supremacy is things like the Klan. It's things like neo-Nazis. It is people who believe that the white race is superior to anything else, and as a result, that entitles them to you know get different treatment better treatment and you know have more rights than anyone who isn't isn't white white nationalism is something different and it is something very very equally scary but scary in a different way white nationalism is the idea that white nationalists will say I don't I don't hate black or brown people I don't hate anyone else I just don't want them to live here I want this land to be white only very straightforward and that is something that under Trump it's something that that kind of has been going for quite some time, something very common on the West Coast. You saw with the you know the Bundy Ranch. And um, these are all white supremacists. There's a huge toll hole, this idea of creating this white ethno-Christian state. And we don't want to talk about it. Because to me, it's it is just as evil and much more of a of akin to, you know, Islamist terrorists because it is this religious motivated thing. Yeah. We don't want to talk about it. And so when I saw one six, you know. Over the years, I saw white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, proud, all these groups. They all came together on a on social media and under the, the, the Trump created umbrella. Like they were all felt they could be connected now. And it frustrated me because we've built all these intelligence apparatus, all these tools, all these ways to go after al-Qaeda and, and ISIS and, and, and terror finance and all these things, these amazing things that, that but we've never used them on domestic terrorism, we never use them against white supremacists or neo-Nazis, even when there's connections to transnational crime and terrorism. And it pissed me off because it's more of a reminder that we live in a country with a double standard. We live in a country when it comes to violence by white men, that there is often a resistance to address it accordingly. And,
0: you know, if this had been the black- Even my white women though, it's, I, I mean, I have had friendships where I'm like, you know, my college friends, some of my closest friends where I'm like, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. Mm-hmm. If you think it was a security breach yeah. on January 6th, because if those were black and brown people, we know there would have been a massacre. Well, It would have been them. a massacre.
1: They would have shot them. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, that—that that, of course. And Ugh. I agree. And this is the fundamental problem. And it's already, it's a, we're not talking about white nationalism, white supremacy anymore. It's its over. It's, and the news cycle's out. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the fundamental problem here is that look, it goes back to the foundation of this country, right? It goes it. back to the Civil War. It goes back to, you know, I was raised, I'm, I'm sure you can agree, I was raised to think the civil rights was a battle that was won and fought by the good the good guys.
0: Oh, totally. And the
1: reality is that there's plenty of people, look at Georgia, who don't yeah. want equality. They oh see my God, equality. openly, openly, just, yes, holy crap. They, totally. <laughs> and and so, so to answer your question at 1.6, what I feel is that once again, we're back in the same position where this is not being taken seriously and we're not going to address it. And it's just going to happen again. And we'll, we'll, you know, there'll be hang ringing and they will be pearl clutching and nothing will change because we don't want to admit that there is, you know, there is a racial problem in this country. There is. Yes. Trump came to be because white men saw that they were losing ground. Yeah. And they wanted to believe that it's the result of people that look like you and I. Yeah, that totally. Us getting rights is somehow or equality or economic mobility is somehow taking
0: away from them. It's a threat to them. Yeah. It's a threat. Yeah. That is so that is so interesting. I never, it's it's so interesting that you pointed that out about white nationalism and white supremacy because I use them interchangeably and I actually thought that white supremacists we're trying to rebrand themselves as white nationalists because it sounds a little bit more proper. Right. But that is so interesting. The point you make, yeah. It's different. It's been around, it's the history of
1: America is so fascinating. Oregon, Washington, these weren't even states during the Civil War. They came to be after the Civil War, and they actually had these, like Washington had this thing called the lash law. So what they wanted is they never owned slaves. And actually, after the Civil War. They wanted to make sure that no Black people, no freed slaves entered there. So they had these things called lash laws that essentially made it illegal for Black men to be there past, I think, 30 or 60 days, or Black women, a little less, and the, the punishment would have been to be lashed. Oh so what they saw is that they just like, we don't want to take a side in the Civil War. We just want this place to be for whites only. <laughs> and that concept is something that even when I lived in Washington, it was not taught to kids. Yeah, you know, it's pretty horrific and yes, it's something that continued forward when we start looking at how neighborhoods today are built, how communities
0: yes, wanted to keep totally.
1: minorities
0: out, why black people can't buy homes in like, you know, really yeah. high-end neighborhoods. Redlining, I think it's called red zoning or It
1: is redlining, it's exactly right. Oh. But the foundation of those concepts really does date back to these ideas and it's just not something The reason they still exist is because no one wants to confront them. Here's one last point. I know you want to move on. But when I was looking at the, um, talking about 1-6, you know, one of the things that absolutely, I'll tell you two quick stories. One was I ended up speaking to a Georgia three percenter. And, you know, it should also come as no surprise. These people are liars. Like they just, you know, so he was telling me all these stories, right? He's driving to DC. You know, we were like, okay, we're going to run this to, to come to the inauguration. He's got 400 people with him. Anyway, he was full of shit, basically. He wouldn't like, <laughs> but we still, we still turned everything over to the Secret Service and the Secret Service was like, oh, well, we've never heard of him, but we want to monitor him now. Thank you for giving us all this stuff. Yeah. And that scared me. Like, how could you not, this guy is claiming to be this and how could you not know anything about him? And yeah. I, I was talking to, you know, FBI sources afterwards and they were telling me like, JTTF, J, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, they had terrorists, you know, they have these squads or dedicated to terrorism. And they'll have like one person who's a domestic terrorism guy or gal. And that person does nothing. They never bring charge. They never do, bring cases. They just, domestic terrorism is not the priority. It's always been, yes. you know, Islamic extremism. So that's one point. The second thing, the, uh, and you, you can Google this, the, when they were trying to, uh, the case about trying to kidnap the, the governor of Michigan. Yes. So looking at that group, that group, amazingly, you know who was in that? Who spent? I think it was 25 years ago. Who spent time training with that militia, Terry Nichols and um, Timothy McVeigh. Oh my God! So not only was the worst domestic terrorists in this nation's history training with that group, and apparently nothing happened to them. Not only did nothing happened to them; they were allowed to continue on to the point where they were going to kidnap the governor of a state. Yes. Like twenty years, a white woman, nonetheless. Yes, <laughs> twenty years. They were allowed to, you know, basically work unfettered, not just under under Trump. Well, you know, under every administration, yeah. no one gave a crap oh. about, you know, this, these groups.
0: And you know what? I almost feel like I mean, the FBI director even said this is like the biggest national security threat. But I feel like Americans, I mean, terrorists like have to be brown. I feel like they're very stubborn about that. Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: Well, well, that's right because you know. I have a lot of respect for white people who speak out on this because it is not in their it is not in their interest to do so, right? Yeah. These are not issues that, no matter how much they might talk about George Floyd, these are things they will never have to
0: yes deal Experience. with. Experience, yes,
1: yes. In fact, yes. to deal with them is to is to have an impact on them.
0: It's to the admit,
1: yeah, their entitlement, and, and 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 I I say that as like a positive, like that's I think it takes guts to do that, but the reality is that these people will never have to experience this stuff. They don't understand it. They understand it in a removed academic sense when in the end of the day, yes. it's not something that really impacts them. So they're never going to quite, you know, they're not going to care. I mean, they're not going to understand what it feels like for someone like me who spent, you know, 20 years, I you mean, know, 13 years in the intelligence community, had top secret clearance, all this stuff. And then when I go through airport security, my bags will get checked. Like it's... yeah. It is, it oh. is, it might seem like a small thing to well, it's just an inconvenience now, something personal.
0: No, it is a big thing, actually. It's an insult. Yeah, it's, it is it, is, it is, it
1: is personal. And yes, it is a message that says, no matter what you do, you're never going to be one of us ever. And yes, that is very much the message that that is, I think, you know, Christopher Ray and all, all these, they're white men. I don't, I don't know that they're bad people. They don't mean well, but they're not going to get it, and that's why it is so important to have people like Lloyd Austin, who are you know black and brown people, at senior levels in these institutions because they yes. will bring
0: they will bring people in
1: change. Yeah, in a way that someone who is a white man can't because they, they can't understand this stuff. They you know the institutions change. They need to change because by actually changing who is leading them and when you have a change in leadership you have a change in culture and when you have a change in culture you have places that look and sound more like
0: the rest of america yes more like america oh seriously okay so my next question i've been dying to ask is what is your favorite spy movie do you watch spy movies do you like love them? of course
1: <laughs> i do so my favorite spy movie is the one that like i, I love Love you. Talked about Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt and, Tom, and and Robert Redford in Spy Game. That's one of my. Oh, favorite. that's one of my
0: favorites. It doesn't get that much love, and they're like in Lebanon. I know. I Why think it's is that? Great so... cast, great movie. Yes, I, I just because I think that you're spying for me.
1: See, a lot of people think about like intelligence and spying, and look, ninety percent of the people you see on TV or you you hear from, they're not spies. Like they're and I'm not poo pooing them. They were analysts. They were people that. Yeah. Um, you know, sifted through raw intelligence. But the people that actually went out and what I did was actually go out and collect that intelligence that was then brought back and analyzed, in my case, both by the Russians and the Americans. But that mean meant talking to people. And Spy Game is so perfect because it's all about dialogue and characters and like sleight of hand, but sleight of hand in terms of tricking people by playing on their ego and that's all spying is like, you're just, Yeah. it's like being, it's in a lot of ways like being a car salesman. You're like, Hey, you're so <laughs> smart. You're so great at this. Oh, just tell me a little more. And just by, by playing on that, you can get people to talk so much. And that spy game is just, the, I, my wife and I love that movie. So yeah, we even try great. to get our kids to watch it and it's, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's my favorite without hands down.
0: Oh, I love that. And I love the relationship between Redford's character and Brad Pitt, yes. right? Totally fatherly yep. and oh gosh, when he gets in that scene, that helicopter, oh, he's a lot. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, you know, that's and, and that's exactly right. Like,
1: so I had a I had case officers who basically were the people that managed me. I was like on the lowest level of the, of the rung on the lower level of the ladder, like the lowest rung on the ladder. And the case officers who were the FBI agents who managed me, you know, like they'd have to be like, hey. Go here. Go here, go into that building, that dark building with a with a, a Russian intelligence officer, and go by yourself. And you know, just trust us that you'll be safe. And you, it's a very, it's a very close relationship.
0: And yeah, they have like their life in their hands, yep. literally.
1: Literally, yeah. And so they have to be able to like be like, you know, put your ha- put their hand on your shoulder and be like, Naveed, it's going to be okay. Just trust us and go do oh that. Oh
0: my god. And you
1: have to be like, okay, so yeah, Robert Redford like encapsulate that case officer like perfectly.
0: Okay. And my last question, God, that is so interesting. Actually, I want to ask you one other question based on that question is, do you, did you ever have a bad case, case officer that you felt like was kind of being like reckless with your life? Um, no, no, I I, can't always be like a good, you know, a good, you know, you, so I was
1: lucky that you work with them and basically I worked for the same ones till I was through. There was a few that rotated off, but essentially, you know, you have a lot of power because they need you. They they can't go and talk to the Russians themselves. Yeah. So they need, so if you come back and you're like, I'm not going to do that, they can be like, okay, I'll give you a perfect example. So the whole reason that I was able to tell this story, which is completely still classified by the way, like is, because at one point the FBI agents came up to me and were like, "Hey, we just want you to sign a non-disclosure agreement." And I was like, "The hell is this?" And I was like, "Do you mind if I have a lawyer look at it?" And I didn't realize that. And but for them, they're like, "Well, we don't want we don't want him to go to a lawyer and have me explain what he's doing for us. Like we don't we call it the circle of trust. Like you don't tell anyone what you're doing. You just yeah. you tell people that's how you die." So they're like, "You know what? Don't worry about it." And they tore <laughs> it up. And the point is that. And I never signed an non-disclosure agreement, so I was able to, you know, when I decided to write a book, which is a whole other story, um, I uh, went to the FBI and they were like, you can do, basically, you can do whatever you want. We can't, we may not comment on it, but, you know, you don't need to submit it to us for manuscript review. You don't need to do anything. And so, <laughs> because I, all because in that one moment, years ago, I asked if I could have a lawyer review it. And what they didn't want is they want me to talk to a lawyer, but they also didn't want me to be thinking about this. Yeah. Like, so you have, you have tremendous power because, you know, without you, there is no operation and yes. it's, yeah. the other challenge is they don't ever want you to know that you have that much power.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, asking. yeah. It's very much like <laughs> parenting, actually. <laughs> it is. It, it, it is. And I got to tell
1: you, like, as a journalist, I often... I still stay in touch with my uh, like several of the FBI agents I work with retired. We, we've gone on TV together and like, we're very, you know, I just spoke to one last night, for example, very good relationship. And I often commiserate with him about how difficult it is to run sources because they're such a pain in the butt. So, but, you know, I always like, <laughs> you're like, can I get, can you help me with this? And I'm like, well, you know, I want to do this. And you gotta, you know, it's like, it is, it's like parenting. So.
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay. So my last question, what inspires you? to do the work that you do.
1: You know, I look at this as I am God, I came along saying this. I'm 45 years old. My time like running around doing this type of thing is over. My chances to climb through an organization are done in that and you know, I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm very comfortable with the trajectory of my career. But what I hope for my generation is that people who come after me can go further than I did. It's very important to me. And it's very important to me selfishly because it is, it is a confirmation that there is this ceiling for brown and black people still, especially in organizations. Mm-hmm. And I wanna see the next generation burst through that ceiling.
0: Burst through oh. it, seriously. Oh.
1: And so that is the thing, like whether it's the intelligence community, whether it's policing, you know, I want to see these organizations fundamentally change and change, From the ground up, and you know that is something that I hope that I can lend my voice to and continue to push for. And here's how I will sum it up: You know what I did as a double agent was an amazing. I'm grateful that I was able to do it. It was an amazing opportunity, but the reality is that I still faced sort of the institutional and systemic racism that said this brown guy is perfect doing this at the lower level, and you know, that didn't translate to them being like, well, he should run an organization that does this. The differences between, you know, there's a a comfort in people who look and sound like me being at a certain place. And it's something I saw when I came to MSNBC, when I come to other places, that people don't really want you to sit at the table. They might want to invite you close to it. But there's still a tremendous amount of institutional racism, of like ceilings that exist of typecasting of
0: oh yes 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 yes
1: you know i still get the whole thing where people are you know they're gonna they want to do a panel on on something and they're well we already have a you know we're gonna invite this person and it's like well
0: so we already have a brown person <laughs>
1: Yep. yeah literally I, i've had i'm not gonna say which place but i've had a very big media organization that said well you know we've had plenty of brown people we had we've Got this guy who's Latino, we've got this guy who's black, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Those you understand that we're not all the same, right? We're not the
0: same, you guys. Breaking news.
1: (laughs) I know, but but that is something they don't get it. They still still, don't get it. Yeah. And and that is something that needs to change dramatically. And until it
0: does, yes,
1: you know, we're not gonna see breakthrough in terms of diversity. And so yeah, so that's the thing that really inspires me is that if I can see if I can see someone Who looks like me? It looks
0: like you, yes.
1: Go further in an institution than I did. I will be thrilled more so than if. Yeah, it's not so much important that I do it. I've had my my run at this, but I want to see other people change. I don't want to be the first. I want there to be a second, a third, a tenth, a twentieth, a hundredth. We should, you know, we should not be twenty twenty one that we have the first, you know, Secretary of Defense who's who's uh, you know a black or even things like. 2020 we had the first African American Navy fighter attack pilot. Like we shouldn't
0: yeah, that shouldn't be a thing. That's crazy. I know we should be well yeah. past that. Yeah. Oh, seriously. What a perfect place to end the interview, Naveed. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. It was it was a blast. Okay, have a good one, Naveed. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. Okay, nice. Sounds good. Bye-bye. I think too often when we talk about the need for diversity, people think of visuals and the optics of it all. But after speaking with Naveed, I am reminded how diversifying our institutions impacts us on a cultural level. And that is where our real strength lies. Because as the face of America changes, shouldn't we want our mentality to as well? If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can stream us on all major podcast platforms. Check us out on Linktree, YouTube, or to make life simple, just visit us on spillingchai.com. And until next time, let's keep spilling the chai.